music going. Hey guys, thank you for coming in for our next, uh, what is this? This isn't a breakout session, is it? No. Might be, we'll find out. Um, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody. I think, uh, I hope everybody's having a good time. Good, okay. If anyone is having a bad time, do not tweet that. Just kidding. Uh, so I, I, I don't often take the privilege of coming up on stage to do a shout out, but I wanted to tell you guys, you have somebody really extraordinary uh, in your company. Uh, and actually that's true for probably, you look to your left and your right, you probably have somebody extraordinary sitting next to you. Uh, but with us today, uh, and has been part of the conference very quietly, is a man who, uh, who I think you'd probably all be proud to know is, is in our company. His name is uh, Professor Aaron Belkin. Aaron, are you actually in the room? God, I hope you are. Are you here? I can't see you because of the lights. Way in the back, turn around, everybody. You see that man, that very handsome man right back there with the nice suit? His name is Aaron Belkin. Uh, if you check in with the network's website from time to time, there's a very good chance you have read some of his work. He has, over the past almost year, very generously given of his time and written reflections about his experience uh, doing this extraordinary thing. Aaron Belkin is probably the person most responsible for ending the policy of don't ask, don't tell with the United States military. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? And he is sharing with us at comnetwork.org his story of how it happened. It's an extraordinary story. It's not an easy story. It's a long story. But he is here with us. Thank you for, for, for uh, offering him a welcome. Really, really proud and honored that he could be with us uh, and be with you. So uh, I'm going to pass it now to uh, my good colleague on the network board, Tanya Barrientos from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Well, thank you for coming back inside, out, for being out in the beautiful sunshine. Um, I'm Tanya Barrientos. I'm the Director of Executive Communications at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I'm also a member of the board of the Communications Network. Um, I think we're in for a really terrific session this afternoon because, as all of us know, it's so important for CEOs of our organizations to understand and embrace the power of strategic communications. Those who do know that communication matters. And that's one of the reasons we actually introduced a new element to the conference this year. It's called the CEO track. And it allows CEOs to come together privately and talk to their peers about issues their experiences, and to discuss the strategic communications in their own organizations. Over the past day and a half, we've had the privilege of hosting 11 CEOs here at the conference this year, and I'd like to take just a moment to recognize each of them by name. Judy Belk of the California Wellness Foundation. Jim Canales of the Barr Foundation. Jean Cochrane of the Duke Endowment. Dr. Sandra Hernandez from the California Healthcare Foundation. Don Howard of the James Irvine Foundation. Matt James of Next Generation. Nancy Jameson from the San Diego Grant Makers. Patrick McCarthy of the Annie E. Casey Foundation. <laughs> Kathleen Mead of the San Diego Foundation. <laughs> Dr. Chad Nelson of Surfrider. <laughs> and Grant Oliphant of the Heinz Endowments. I'd also like to thank Professor George Lakoff from the University of California at Berkeley and Dan McGinn of McGinn & Company who have really helped to make this CEO track a success this year. So now, I'd like to bring to the stage the panelists and also Eric Nee, who is the managing editor of the Stanford Social Innovation Review and he's going to lead our discussion.
I want to say that we're also very grateful to SSIR for being our media sponsor for this conference. So Eric, if you and the panelists will come on stage, I'll leave it to you to introduce the panelists. Thank you. <clears throat> Well, thank you very much, Tanya, for that um, great introduction. Um, before we get started, I just wanted to mention briefly um, this magazine that you probably picked up when you registered for the conference called Change Agent. Um, the reason I mention it is because it has five articles in there that were published on SSIR's website that we co-produced with the communications network. And interestingly, all, the articles were all written by CEOs of organizations engaged in, <clears throat> in social change, either foundations or NGOs. And the topics of those articles are very similar to the ones that we're going to discuss today. So I would encourage you to go read those. And in fact, one of the authors of uh, those five articles is with us on the panel today, Matt James. <clears throat> So we're going to have today a, a very broad discussion uh, from the CEO perspective about communications, both what it is in their organization, how they practice it, how it's changed over the years, and in particular looking at, at social media and the impact that's had on the way communications has uh, been practiced. And the way we're going to structure the discussion is the first 40 minutes or so will be a moderated discussion that I'll lead. <clears throat> and then we'll open it up to questions from the audience. So as you're listening to people talk, and you hear something that really sparks your interest, please write it down and be ready to ask a question. Um, we're going to have mics going throughout the audience, but please wait for the mic to arrive to you to ask your question. And when you ask it, it would be great if you could identify yourself um, before you ask the question. So. <clears throat> the panelists that we have with us today, um, to my left, Judy Belk, the CEO of the California Wellness Foundation, Grant Oliphant, the president of the Heinz Endowments, Dr. Sandra Hernandez, the CEO of the California Healthcare Foundation, Matt James, the president and co-founder of Next Generation, and last but not least, Patrick McCarthy, the president and CEO of the Annie E. Casey Foundation. So I'd like to start off the conversation at a pretty broad level and then dive down. Um, the first, let me just bring up this, this uh, issue again. The, the first article in this was written by uh, Judith Roden, the CEO of the Rockefeller Foundation. And it's an interesting article, I thought, because what she does is sort of recast the term communications and she talks about it as influence and how do we, how does, the Rockefeller Foundation wield influence through all of its um, capabilities, through its brand, through its reputation, through its knowledge, through its networks, and use that to actively try to change public conversation and, just as importantly, change public policy. So that's sort of how she framed it. But I, what I'd like to hear from our panelists is how you think about communications, both the word of communicate communications, but also, you know, as a, as a leader of an organization um, involved in social change, how do you understand what that is? And, and let me start with uh, Judy. Thank you. First of all, it's great to be here. Hello, all of you. Uh, I have to say that I'm so impressed um, with the transformation of the communications network. I, I do remember years ago when um, the focus was, you know, how to write a press release. There weren't as many of us here, and so I just want to applaud you. And also thank all of you for um, your contributions to just the philanthropic sector in general. So great. Um, you know, I'm a little different in that, you know, when I think about communications, is it something to influence? You know, for me, communications is this basic, it's kind of the air you breathe, because I don't think you can do squat without communicating. Um, and, and so when, when I um, 
when I think about what my role is at the, um, at the foundation, it's communication. I mean, guys, I'm communicating so much that by Friday night, I don't know if you've heard the term, that you know you're getting old when the phone rings on Saturday night and you hope it's not for you. That's, um, that's, that's kind of how I feel. I don't want to talk to anybody. Um, but it's because, you know, communication for me starts the moment that I you know, walk into the office. The first thing I do is get a cup of tea and I make a walk through the office. That's where I really find out what's really happening in the organization. And, you know, I've only been in this job 18 months and the first time I did it, I got feedback saying, hey, you know, the CEO is walking around. What do you think her agenda is? So. <laughs> So that's the most basic, all the way to, um, you know, a week ago, uh, being invited to uh, the editorial board of, you know, CBS, the CBS local O&O in San Francisco. So it's communication. And then the other reason why it just is so much a part of how I view the world is that I was a communications professional before I was you know, a philanthropic professional. I, I, you know, majored in communications in undergraduate, and there's two things that I knew I wanted to do was to tell stories and serve. And I didn't even know philanthropy was there. So my, you know, I've worked in the public sector, I've worked in the corporate sector, all where I had responsibilities for communication. So, you know, my motto is, you know, 99% of the world's problems could be solved by better communication. Uh, so I just have a different viewpoint. It's hard for me to separate communication over here and everything that I do over here. It is just so integral. And I have to say, um, you know, I really thank my lucky stars every day that I had the experience that many of you had in supporting um, executives and doing communication because I think I'm a better CEO as a result of that. Grant, you actually started as I think um, the director of communications at uh, Heinz um, and now you're the CEO. Similar trajectory. So, what Judy said. Um, <laughs> you know, I, um, I am totally jazzed to see the growth of the network, too. Um, a few of us were joking in the hall about the days when we would have felt lucky to have 100 people here. And um, I'm sorry that all of you didn't fit on the bus to downtown, but I'm kind of glad you're here uh, for, for this session. Um, I actually want to sort of shamelessly use this moment to pitch you on something because having come out of communications, I, I view everything I do through that lens. And if you're like I was um, and still am, there's a part of you that is a technocrat working in a very technocratic field where um, you know, you're focusing on things like brand and identity and um, you're, you're looking at how to make your work conform with logic models. How many of you have done that? Um, and you know, this is a field that, that gets very technocratic very quickly. Um, but there's another part of you that is a poet and an artist and a storyteller. And what I really want to urge you to do is be that um, in the work that you do. You're going to hate taking this note, you know, set of notes back to your CEO. but. Um, there are three things that foundations do. There are only, in my opinion, there are only three things that foundations do when we're using our power well. Um, one of them is to bear witness. So we look at the world, we see what's happening, and we reflect that back. Um, that is a process that, by the way, does not begin with talking, it begins with listening, which is where good communications really starts. Um, and the work of foundations and philanthropy when we're doing our job well is to, is to do that, is to bear witness to what's happening in the world, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the stuff that we wish wasn't happening, and the inspiration that keeps us going. The second thing that we do is awaken empathy. Uh, so we get, you know, very little of, of what we are able to do will ever change the world unless we get other people to change, us, change it for us. 
And that begins with them actually seeing themselves in the people and situations that we're talking about. So climate change is not about some fool standing on the floor of the Senate holding a snowball. Sorry if that's political, but um, it, is, it is about uh, people whose country will disappear, who, whose homes will disappear, whose livelihoods will disappear. And if we can awaken empathy in, for them in others, then we stand a chance of affecting the issue. And the third thing we do is evoke action. We get others to, and ourselves to figure out how to move on an issue and take it on. And I think these are the, these are the central challenges of our time. That middle one around awakening empathy is actually probably, to my mind, the central challenge of our era. It's how to get each other to see our essential humanity in people who are not like us, who we don't think are like us, but who are exactly like us at some deep level. Um, and everything we do at our foundation is ultimately about these three things. We call it by various issue names. Um, we focus on things like uh, fracking and the Marcella Shale. And what we're trying to do is get people to see what's really happening whose lives are affected, why they should be empathetic about it, what they can do in response to it. And issue after issue, this is what foundations do. And if you can name one of those three things that can happen without good communications, um, you're better than I am at identifying it because I've never been able to figure out how we can successfully do what we do without it being about communications. So Sandra, you come at this a bit differently. You're a, a medical doctor, and no offense, but they're not often known for being not the best <laughs> communicators um, or empathetic people. Um, they're not exactly cutting edge and change, either, <laughs> as the foundation will attest. <laughs> but um, what, what's your perspective on this? Well, you know, uh, really didn't come from a communications background at all. Um, when you come out of direct patient care, um, you really come up through uh, an academic training, very scientific, very research-oriented, very data-driven uh, set of, of systems. Um, and what you try to do when you get out uh, and start practicing medicine is have that and some form of bedside manner. That is the ability to understand subjectively in a person's own voice, in their own uh, uh, circumstances, what matters to them. And then you really try to collect a lot of information, physical exams and laboratories and the best science and medicine, and with them, develop a plan. Um, it's, a, it's, the, it's the way physicians were trained. Uh, to be, and if you're lucky when you get out, you actually have a bedside manner. You have the ability to uh, listen uh, both to what people are saying and what matters to them and what matters to their family, um, and then establish a meaningful relationship, a respectful relationship, and then really try to mobilize all the capabilities that you have, technical, scientific, pharmaceutical, to do the right thing by them over a long period of time. And I was trained as a primary care physician, so continuity and the long view uh, have always been sort of part of my formal training and I think are pretty well embedded in my uh, professional DNA. When you get to uh, a place where you recognize that as satisfying as that work is, how much dysfunction there is and disparity there are and gaps that people fall through. Um, I still remember the moment when it was clear to me I wanted to do something more than practice primary care medicine. And part of that is just seeing how inadvertent policies create all sorts of unintended consequences. And so my path into philanthropy was very much um, uh, that, actually my path into public health first uh, was very much about that. And even in public health where, um, and many people in this room are working at the interface of public health or directly in public health, um, you quickly realize that all of the best prevention information that you can promulgate, and keep in mind, I grew up in the HIV epidemic as a physician, so this was 
uh, death and dying and morbidity and new science and uh, all happening in very rapid fire. And I think one of the things you recognize pretty quickly is that if you step back and really think about what it is you're trying to achieve, education matters, poverty matters, geography matters. There are so many more things beyond getting everybody immunized. Um, and so, you know, from public health, in some ways, my professional life went broader. Um, and I, I do think that um, always have been, because I think of my training, uh, with an orientation to, okay, you can have all the best information and data. Who cares? Who uses it? How does it get in the hands of places where people will do something and take an action that is different than they would have taken if they hadn't? And the, the one just very short example that immediately comes to mind around this was um, when we decided, in spite of the fact that it was illegal, to distribute needles during the early part of the AIDS epidemic. We had very good science that it worked. It was being done in Europe. It had been documented outside of public uh, sphere. And, but I was really clear that we weren't simply going to start distributing needles in communities that had high rates of injection drug use if we didn't have a lot of people really understanding in the first person with all the public health data that we had why that action actually made sense. And that was my first real um, uh, sensibility about how important communicating what and why one would do something which at the time seemed absolutely outrageous if not pernicious. Um, and I think you end up, by virtue of those things, understanding what the power of both data and information and communication capabilities mean to be able to engage with the community to do something that, in that case, frankly, saved hundreds of thousands of lives. So I think I learned it on the job to the extent that I know it at all would be the short story. But I think it's also important that the California Healthcare Foundation this is an organization 17 years old who very early on understood the power and importance of communication, of data, of strategy that actually thinks about how you use data in order to help inform all kinds of decision makers to act differently. It, there is an ends to the mean. And thinking about who needs to act differently and who those leaders are and what they need to be able to do that I think is very central to how CHCF thinks about it in our world today. Matt, you're, you spent a lot of years at Kaiser, um, and now you've gone off and started a new organization that, as you described to me, is all about communications. How do you, what do you, how, how would you describe this elephant? Well, let, let me just back up a little bit and say uh, just a, a moment about, uh, first of all, the communications network and really what has happened here. It's, it really is remarkable. Uh, I was on the early board when Frank Carell pulled this thing together, and there was actually a session, I think, called, Oh No, a Reporter Called, What Do We Do? It's amazing <laughs> how far this group has come, and, and the leadership really deserves a lot of credit for that. They really do. Um, let me just sort of secondly say, you got an amazing group of communicators up here. I watched Judy at uh, her coming out party, if you will, up in San Francisco, where she spoke to grantees and to uh, others connected to the foundation. And I was standing next to Drew, Bal Drew Altman, my uh, old boss at Kaiser, and we both looked at each other and said, wow, that's how you do it. Uh, and so it really is amazing uh, what, the way you communicate and how that works so well for your institution. I think Grant actually said quite eloquently what foundations can do. And the tools that they have to do that are sort of the following. They have money, which is mostly what the nonprofits want. They want the money to be able to do what they want to do. They also have people, they have a network inside their organizations that are incredibly strong and powerful and really knowledgeable about what they do. And that sometimes gets discounted because they don't actually use that network as much as they can. And I think effective foundations are using them. And they also have a voice. And this is one of the things that is, I think, hardest for a lot of foundations to figure out is what is their voice? How much are they out there talking for uh, the issues that they care about, how, how much are they putting their brand out there, 
And there's no one right solution to that. I think it really comes down to each organization, what the board is like, what the staff is like, and most importantly, what the CEO is like. And is, are, is that CEO, he or she, driving that through the organization? That's an individual set of um, uh, uh, decisions that need to be made. But basically, I would make the case, uh, and have done so uh, for years, like, like uh, Grant, I started off as a communications director, so if you aspire to ever run something, you know, there are models here um, to, to do this. Um, don't do it, yeah, we'll talk to you later, but cocktail hour, we'll talk about that. But I would say there's sort of four things that I always try to think about in terms of communications. One is, communications is no sport for the short-winded. Uh, and you need to stick with issues. If you're ri really trying to take, make social change, you need to stick with it for a long time. Sandra raised HIV. We were involved early in HIV, as you know, at Kaiser Family Foundation, Mark Smith, uh, uh, and many others. Uh, we were also involved in the early attempts at health reform back in the early 90s. And we figured out the messages we wanted to make, and we said them over and over and over and over and over. And, you know, Ronald Reagan actually had a great saying. He said, when you're really getting bored with your message, that's when you know you're starting to have an impact. <laughs> and you need to do that. You need to stick with basically things. And sometimes foundations don't do this. They don't stick well enough with an issue. I would also make the case, like you just did, uh, Sandra, that facts matter a lot. Uh, we heard from Soledad O'Brien today, and she was great, about you need to tell stories. Facts and words matter, and how you use them matter a lot. Um, I'll give you a small story about my daughter, uh, Isabel, who had me come in and talk to her high school uh, about, gosh, I guess about 10 years ago. And this isn't exactly how she introduced me, but this is what I remember. She said, this is my dad. He's worked for years on the uninsured. He's worked for years on HIV. In that time, both problems have gotten worse. Here's my dad. <laughs> And I remember standing in front of the class thinking, oh gosh, okay, <laughs> my, wife, my life has been wasted. Um, but in fact, we have health reform, we have made incredible progress in HIV. If you stick with issues long enough, you do start to make a difference. And I, I think that's, that's just important to bring forward. And the facts mattered there. I think we're, uh, you can argue that we're making the case uh, now on climate change, that we're turning the corner uh, because the facts have been taught. We're no longer arguing about the science. 54% of Republicans now say that it is man-made uh, in a poll that just came out. So we're making a difference there too, but it's sticking with it and getting your facts right. And I guess the last point I would make is, as a foundation, uh, you need to know what you want to communicate and who you want to communicate it to. And know that your messages are heard differently by different audiences. So when we talk about income inequality, my father, uh, I, I was raised in a household with a liberal mother and a conservative father, it was like a sitcom. My father, when he hears uh, uh, basically income inequality, he hears uh, income redistribution. He hears different things than the rest of us do. So you need to think about your messages, who are you trying to communicate with? And sometimes I think foundations don't necessarily think about that enough. They are communicating the way they want to to their tribe, if you will, the people that they are familiar and they're comfortable with, but that doesn't necessarily move the issue. Patrick. Um Matt said a couple things. Um, facts matter. Got to stick to it. You've been at um, NEKC for 20 plus years, and a lot of what you do is gather facts and information and get them out there. What, talk about what, what, what you've been doing and, and sure. how you view communications at your foundation. Sure. So um, I think I would build on, I mean, this, this is like a seminar. I, I think it's bad form for a panelist to be jotting notes, or otherwise I would be. So this is just a terrific uh, collection of, so take out your pens because I, I just gave you permission. <laughs> um, but I actually think uh, in addition to what's been said, we need to broaden even more what we think about when we talk about communications. And I'm gonna use, um, uh, an example, uh, the Casey Foundation has recently put a stake in the ground and said that uh, we are now at the place in our history where we should close every single youth prison in this country as an example of a failed institution. So that's a simple, straightforward message in some ways with lots of complexity and controversy and difficulty uh, underneath it. If we think about this as uh, a communications issue, then we have to start thinking about how do you influence lots and lots of folks in, to think differently than we've thought before. 
And you've got to start with the idea that you're not going to get this done unless you have a whole network, a fairly diverse network of organizations and people who are going to um, uh, get together with you. So you, using that as an example, what uh, I think it's important to do as an organization is to frame a problem in a way that people can understand and feel like they have to do something about it or frame an opportunity in that way. You've got to give a sense that there is something to move toward. If you're going to do that, facts matter a lot and stories matter a lot. I recently gave a TED talk and in that process I layered it with lots and lots of facts and lots and lots of stories because thanks to our wonderful communications team, they told me I had to. So. Um, the, the point of that is you need to tell um, uh, stories, you need to engage the data, but you also need to draw from the evidence about what works. I spent a lot of time giving examples of bad outcomes from uh, incarceration of young people. Lots and lots of examples of it, but I also had to give examples of here's, here's, um, here's what, what, what works. The, trigger, I think, is because we have a network across the country of uh, Kids Count organizations that we've funded for 20 years, when we take on an issue like this, we spend months ahead of time working with them because they're in states and they're going to be our sort of retail outlet. They're going to be the megaphone that we use to push this forward. If we're going to do that kind of work, we can't just have the communications team see it as their job. We've got a policy advocacy team, so we moved communications and policy advocacy together. We moved Kids Count in with communications. We moved our leadership development in with communication. We do a lot of partnership work. We uh, fund big organizations that have um, affiliates, so like uh, Boys and Girls Clubs and the Y and United Way and Catholic Charities, et cetera, Goodwill. And we fund the National Government Association, National Conference of State Legislators. We move them into the same department. So now we have our communications folks and our data folks and our policy advocacy folks and our partnership folks and then we move leadership development, external leadership development into that. So when I think about communications and trying to achieve influence from the standpoint of what we can contribute to the conversation, I think how do you bring all of that together in a strategic and planful way, in a synergistic way, so you really, really uh, 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 grow, grow the network. The last thing I'll, I'll, I'll say on that is I think it's an important job for foundations. I think it's implicit in what others have said, but it's an important job for foundations to sort of um, provide and hold the microphone for folks who are not usually heard from. So it is both our responsibility to be clear about what we have to say, and it's also, from my point of view, our responsibility to think about whose voices are not being heard. In this example, it's the young people themselves and it's their families. No one hears from the families of youth who are incarcerated. That's historically been true, it's now changing. There are groups forming, we're supporting it, other folks are supporting it. And up until now, there have not been, uh, we don't think about kids in the juvenile justice system in a sympathetic way. So we are building a network of young leaders who have been incarcerated, including a few of them who are still incarcerated, who are part of not only our advisory group, but as we move forward, will be part of the message bearers. This is what happened to me. Much better they tell their story than I tell their story. Well, I, I wanted to pick up on your point about how do you do it, and I thought your description of what you've done um, integrating these various parts of your foundation together is, is really interesting and important. And I'd be curious to hear at, at some of these other organizations, um, how you've done that? Has it worked? Um, I noticed, Sandra, that I was just totaling up how many people were in um, your um, external engagement yes. group, and it's as large as in program. Right. Yeah, so we, we did very similar things to what Patrick did. I think the idea being that the foundation had long had embedded within program uh, very capable communications officers that really did strategize always with the program teams as they did their work. That had uh, pre-existed. Uh, it, it was really a strategic partnership in thinking about the work and the change you're trying to see have happen in the work and how communication, media, infographics, uh, video distributions, 
community convenings, webinars, how all of those things, those tools could be used in furtherance of the programmatic goals. Um, we've been done a lot of very important work in, in health policy, had, had an office in Sacramento, and the policy work, and if you think about, again, who you're trying to engage in a policy conversation, whether it's regulators or legislators or administrators, the idea being that these are all part of thinking about how we engage folks, and they are, in fact, an audience for a lot of our work. And so we took uh, all of that policy office and put it together with uh, our communications team, all of our publishing is there. Um, soon probably our CRM will be there as well. Um, we haven't yet done leadership. It's a very interesting idea. We of course have a clinical leaders program and have had for many years and do think about them very much as leaders within institutions that are doing the work that needs to be done within them for change. Um, it, is, it, it is early in, our, in this organization, and um, by the way, the other piece that we're trying to do, we've done a lot of work on freeing data. In other words, the foundation had historically done a tremendous amount of research uh, and analytic work, which of course we would then curate, I know this because I've been a long-term subscriber before I came to the foundation, of a lot of the work that the foundation had curated and pulled together. I think. Uh, with great leadership um, uh, from within the organization, this notion of while we're trying to get data to be opened up in the public sphere and public health, um, we should also be making everything, every analysis that we do, the data should be available so that people can query it and ask, or ask their own questions and analyze their own things, whether it's a researcher, an advocate, a consumer. And so thinking about how we continue to maintain rigor in data but make the data available for people is another part of what we're trying to do in the context of this engagement strategy more broadly. And uh, that has, you know, uh, borne some very early and very exciting fruit in, in Sacramento and the health department. We're expecting it to happen in Medi-Cal. Um, and I think we're beginning to think a lot more about how we both continue to curate very high quality, rigorous information, but not curate it in a way that you can't open it up and actually analyze it yourself. And so that opening of data, which I think is also so powerful for engagement of everybody. I mean, we can think about who we're specifically trying to reach when we write a report, but the possibilities for who might ask what question and what might come from that, I think, has an amplification that is powerful and that we are hoping to unleash. I, I think a lot about how we can really touch and educate um, the beneficiaries of where our grants are supposed to hit. One of the reasons that I was so attractive to, attracted to this job was um, almost 20 years ago, California Wellness um, embraced um, public health research which says that violence is a indeed a public health issue. I know the idea that anyone would debate that now seems a little crazy, but it was really quite um, extraordinary that a foundation, and, and Gary Yates, um, you know, who was the CEO at the time, gets a lot of credit. Uh, that's an important part of our legacy, and we used public education to really um, public education campaigns to really promote that. I mean, today, it's not a distinction I'm proud of, but we are the largest funder of gun violence prevention in the state of California. I'd much rather use those dollars somewhere else. So, you know, sometimes just plain uh, symbolism is pretty powerful. About a week ago, I was asked to um, give an award to a young woman who produced a film about violence in her community, really a PSA. During that time, also awards were given to others who were working in the fight against gun violence. And what the Violence Prevention Council did was in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, um, they had taken guns that had been confiscated throughout 
uh, Los Angeles and melted them down and had given it to an artist to develop an angel out of that melted um, metal. And you know, it was, it was symbolism that really kind of state uh, said it all. You know, early in my career when I was at Levi Strauss and we were concerned uh, during the time that uh, Sandra was providing leadership at the public health department, we were really one of the first um, corporate funders looking at the fight against AIDS. And we were trying, and I decided I didn't have as much money as I had here, but I I mean, I had some of the best marketing people, I thought, in the industry, and I asked if they could develop a public service announcement, and they did. They developed a public service announcement that ran in Europe targeting young people, which said, you know, um, you know, condoms, you know, what to wear when you're not wearing Levi's. Um, it was... Uh, um, you know, I remember Bob Haas saying, okay, Belk, um, and it... And we were able to prove that when it was shown in film houses in Europe, on condoms, um, sales of condoms increased. And then the other thing is using the, the power of the CEO. Um, we gave, um, we asked Bob Haas to stand out in front of Levi's headquarters and give out condoms. I mean, Bob Haas is very shy, and we, <laughs> you know, but he did it, and it was really quite. Um, quite powerful. So I'm always really thinking of how we can use anything. We recently just funded a production of Anna DeVere Smith, an artist um, who really has done a tremendous job of showing how art can be used for social change. Uh, her production at the Berkeley Rep, really looking at the whole issue of um, how to break the school to prison pipeline. I would say we reached a lot of folks um, in underwriting that that would have never, you know, written, you know, read a report that we did about all of the statistics. So I think we're, you, we all have to look at a, ver a variety of different ways um, and touching the audience. And you guys know more than any anyone else um, how do you can creatively do that? How can you use our voices as CEOs? How do we use boards? How do we work with grantees? So I'm going to open it up to audience Q&A here in about five minutes, so get ready. Um, but before we do that, I do want to touch on um, the impact of the digital age on what we're doing. I, I liked your term, freeing the data. Um, historically, foundations have, um, communications tended to be more one-way than a, a, a two-way interaction. I mean, there are foundations that say, you know, don't call us, we'll call you, um, you know. And, but the nature of a lot of social media is, is, is two-way conversation. So I'm curious, to, it's kind of a big question, but you know, to what extent have you personally begun to be involved in, in social media, um, or if not personally, your organization, and opening that door? Um, and what changes has that caused in the way you think about communications, and also internally, in, in how you operate um, when, when people can get talk to you as easily as you can talk to them. So if I can um, take that first. You know, I, I, I remember when I was first starting out in this work, sitting in a much smaller room than this, but um, being part of a panel where we were talking about the merits of communications and having a CEO who was on that panel with me um, say with great uh, soberness to the assembled uh, group of 20 of us, I think, that the spouting whale gets harpooned. And, um, and I, I had the audacity to point out that the spouting whale also breathes. Um, but, the, but we're way past that debate. You know, and social media is one of the reasons that we're way past that debate. So whether you're terrified by it or excited by it, it's part of the world now. Um, and it is, uh, of necessity, part of how we communicate. And I think it's um, reinventing the ways in which we think about communications in some exciting, really exciting ways. 
Uh, we have an initiative that actually was started under um, my, my friend Doug Root, who uh, um, was, was there at the inception of this program, and it's a program to look at air quality in our region. And we suffer from some of the worst air quality in the country uh, that tends to concentrate in poor neighborhoods and river valleys. And it's a, it's a serious environmental justice issue as well as a public health issue. Um, so we could editorialize about that till we're blue in the face. We tried that. We tried public messaging through traditional media. Um, and, and John Ellis from my team and I, as we continue this work, one of the things that has changed this work is that we've democratized the process of talking about it. So what you see now is through technology that the foundation has funded, we've created something called the Breathe Cam that allows uh, citizens actually to monitor their quality in the areas where they live and to put that up on the web and that data becomes readily available to everybody else. Um, so it's going way beyond tweeting, it's going to the extent of citizens becoming catalogers of their own experience. Um, and we, we see that as well with something we call a breathe monitor, which is a little inexpensive device to let them track what the air quality is in their community. And so suddenly we've taken the power equation and inverted it because of what they had to do in the past was depend on government to tell them what was happening. And now suddenly you have thousands and tens of thousands of people who are telling us and telling government what's happening. And suddenly government begins to behave differently. And I, to me, that's one of the great um, unexplored frontiers of this work, but it goes way beyond um, what we typically think of as social media. I could just make one quick point about uh, social media and, and nonprofits and foundations. So, and this is a true story. I was actually talking with a communications director who had gone in to talk to their boss about, and this is a conservative foundation, uh, about getting active on Twitter. And the uh, response was, and what should I be Twittering about? And that's sort of, there, there was no real game plan. There was no nothing, but they just knew they needed to be there. Where it is the most effective, obviously, is when you have people uh, like Kate Gordon, who used to work for me at, uh, uh, at Next Generation, could jump in real time in an issue and contribute something because of the following that she had and because of the respect in the community she had and could turn a story that was happening in real time, and that's what Twitter can do. Similarly, Larry Levitt at the Kaiser Family Foundation is so respected uh, when it comes to health policy and uh, employee health uh, benefits in particular. Uh, is a relied upon source. And so there's a tr there are Twitter strategies around these individuals to be able to make a difference with social media. But all too often, I think uh, organizations are jumping into social media without really thinking through what are we trying to do? How are we trying to make change? I think that we can, this is an area we can learn a lot from our grantees. I mean, I think they're a lot more sophisticated in knowledge about it. Um, you know, technology communication is really transforming movement building. I mean, we recently um, had um, someone come in to talk to the board about um, just the violence in the communities, and a board member said, what do you think? What, what do you think is really going to change it? And he said, you know, body cams on um, in law enforcement, uh, where um, which has changed tremendously um, an issue that has spurred, you know, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. Uh, if you look at what Inconvenient Truth has done in terms of just the knowledge about climate change or waiting for Superman, it, it just goes on and on, and I think that uh, in many ways, you know, we are, we're a little behind, and this is where I think um, it would do us well to really talk to many of our, our grantees and community partners, um, and we can learn from them, because I think it's been a powerful movement building tool. Well, with that, I'd like to open it up to questions from the audience. I'm shading my eyes here since I cannot see. Does anyone have any questions? Right here in the middle. So for organizations that aren't fortunate enough to have former communication people in the head of the organization, <laughs> um, uh, I'm wondering on some advice you might give your colleagues. And what I'm particularly interested in is the recognition of 
communication as being valuable, but when you get into the actual what that means, shying away from it because of preconceptions about communication or a fear of the technology or whatever. So I would just love to hear some comments of, of ways to your fellow CEOs for getting on board. Go ahead. Let me just, let me make one observation that, um, you know, anytime you're using the public resources of a philanthropic entity, uh, you know, the governing board wants to know what's the value you're going to get from any investment, whether it's a large initiative, whether it's staffing, whatever it is. And I do think it's important for the field to get uh, familiar with and comfortable with the notion that there is a way to measure the value of communication and social media and the investment that an organization makes in that. And I think if you simply say, well, it's a supportive function or it's a peripheral function or it sits off at the CEO's office, there's a way in which that silos it and it doesn't get the organizational uh, relevance and synergy that it should get. And so I think it's really important. There was actually an article not too long ago uh, in, uh, in SSIR about thinking about how you measure the impact of communications. And I think we need to get much more acumen about thinking about that in order to justify the kind of investments that we should be making and that would make it much easier to convince an otherwise unconvinced CEO the importance of that kind of investment. I mean, the, seven, the California Healthcare Foundation has probably 18 to 20% of its resources invested all in, in the range of activities that we've talked about today. So I, I do think it's important to think about how you uh, justify it as an important uh, component of what it is you're trying to do overall with your mission. I think there are two ways. Um, one is internal accountability. Uh, I view communications much as I view, for example, financial management. Yes, I have a CFO because we need that direct expertise, but I expect um, everyone in the organization, every department head to be responsible and accountable for their budget. So a communication is a resource and there's two ways that you can integrate it. One is integrated into your strategy, that it's not something over here, but as we've done in Cal Wellness, communications is integrated in terms of our grant-making strategy and everything you do. The other thing you do is that you, you hold people accountable in terms of their performance um, review. Again, communication, an in-house communication team is there to be a resource to help you, just as the finance people, but you are also responsible. I view it just as you know accountability around promoting diversity and, you know, performance, you know, with HR. I mean, yes, we have an HR department, but I expect every manager and everyone in the organization to uh, be held accountable, and then we need to be sure that folks have the resources. Just a couple of quick thoughts. You know, just as a company can't sell a product without advertising and marketing and public relations, or a politician can't sell an idea without communicating it to the broad, that's the same thing we're talking about here. Communications to me needs to be part and parcel of programming. Communications people are going to give you all something to take back and, and ask for a raise or a promotion or something. <laughs> Communicator, communications people need to be on equal level with uh, the program managers uh, uh, who are inside the organizations if you want to be successful as a communications organization. Now, again, I'll go back to one thing I said. Every organization is a little bit different and have different reasons that they're communicating. Some are trying to work more with their grantees and have their grantees be more effective in communication. That's a totally valid and a different strategy than what we did at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Go ahead. Hi. Um, yes. Um, in the corporate introduce world. yourself if you could just. Oh, yeah. My name is Eric Kassam. I'm with the Imagine Institute. It's a think tank in the West Coast. Um, in the corporate world, you have venture capital. So you have Steve Jobs, he's a guy in a garage, he has a good idea, and he wouldn't have been, we wouldn't have Apple without venture capital. But it seems to me that in the foundation, they're looking for an organized group that's been around for a long time and it's existed for a while, that is there such a thing as venture capital in this? And if so, where is it? Yeah, I, I, well, let me, let me uh, address that. I, um, the answer is yes. I mean, California Healthcare Foundation has had for uh, more than a half a dozen years uh, a fund that is specifically looking for 
new market entrants to solve problems, whether it's around access or consumer engagement or data analytics. Uh, it's a program-related investment program. Um, and the foundation decided to really look for companies that were very early in their stage of development. Uh, as a uh, mechanism by which we could do two things. One was heavily influence the direction of that company's either service or tool to aim it specifically at low-income programs like Medi-Cal or other programs that benefit the public uh, more broadly, community health centers, FQHCs. Whereas they might build a company and aim it at the for-profit side of healthcare, we felt if we did an early investment in these companies and these teams, provided governance and early working capital to those companies, that they could in fact sometimes come in and accelerate the kinds of changes that we're trying to see happen within the sectors that we're working. So we think it's a very important tool. We have a board member who uh, herself is a health VC. We put together an advisory group of VCs who are in the health space and explain to them what our mission is, how we're trying to make an influence uh, in the kinds of programs we're looking for, what kind of services we're looking at. And so when they're out there doing their work, they identify companies for us, and then we have a very thorough due diligence process. We've probably got about $3.5 million in revolving dollars today invested in uh, early stage companies. Um, we, board just approved a million dollar investment yesterday actually into another company that's going to come in and do population health for people with five and six chronic diseases, working with uh, a Medi-Cal uh, insurance plan both in Southern California and Northern California. So we think it's really important to look at where that sector can be beneficial, where they can be disruptive, and where we could potentially scale it on behalf of the underserved. So we're very much in that space, and I think it is a really important tool. It is complex about how you organize it. Um, I think uh, the advantage that we have is we have so many VCs in the Bay Area where we exist that are mission-minded in spite of the fact that they're investing in companies for other rewards. They have a great uh, sense of the market and it benefits us tremendously with a relatively small staff to be able to have that kind of, uh, of leverage and, and capability. So there's, um, there's two ways to take that question, right? So there's the what are the PRI and the, the true venture capital being invested in breakthrough disruptive ideas? And I think that's a, uh, one, one side of the coin. The other side is, um, do our foundations comfortable enough in providing grants to what are essentially startup nonprofits who are working in the field, not on the PRI side now, but actually on the grants? And I, I think about, uh, we periodically will hire an outside group who will call congressional staff members and say, in a particular issue, who are the five organizations that you're most likely to contact when this issue comes before your committee? And if the folks we're funding are in that top five, we think we're making smart choices, right? At the same time, though, in the last few years, there are at least five examples I can think of of new organizations that started that took over a space or a niche that had not yet been there, at least we had not invested in it, and we made a bet on the people, which I think is sort of the VC mantra, right? So we, we knew the individual or group of individuals who were spinning off from having done something else, and even though we have our kind of blue chip that we have deliberately and with pride invested in year after year after year after year because they're the best at it, they're influential. They're always at a simmer. And if an issue comes up, we can bring it to a boil. We have also invested in some new organizations because they bring a different diversity or a different voice or a different perspective. And we've made some good bets and some bad bets, but that's the other side of the being willing to take a venture risk as a philanthropist. Do we have another question now? Yes. Yeah, thanks very much. Very interesting. Um, my name is James. I work for UNICEF in, in Kenya. Um, this question may not be appropriate to everyone in the room, but I traveled further, so just indulge me for 30 seconds. <laughs> Some big picture problems in the world, Ukraine, Yemen, Syria, migration. Um, while I understand Mr. Trump has a solution to most of these things, for the rest of us, they're difficult and there's a lot of fatigue out there. 
We heard this morning, I thought it was really well captured, the idea that you tell a story of one and you gain people, and if you tell the statistic of thousands, you lose them. But at the same time, there's a geographical proximity that really engages people. So Nick Kristoff writes on Lady Gaga's anti-bullying campaign and gets a huge following. He writes on war crimes in South Sudan, not so much. I'm interested if any of you have ideas on how to address this kind of compassion fatigue among the public, among the, the, the media and so on. Thank you. Go ahead, Greg. You know, um, this is such a profound question. And if you go to the second of my um, notion of the three things that foundations do well when we use our power well, um, Awakening empathy is a process that is never ending. So uh, I don't think you get to tell the story of one once. Um, you have to keep repeatedly telling it and find it, keep repeating in a way that you find new stories, new ways to tell it. You know, I'm very, very taken in our work by the work that the Haas Foundation did on marriage equality. And if you think about how they reframed that issue um, at a point when Everybody thought that that fight was going to be lost, at least for the foreseeable future. When they reframed it around love, um, suddenly we began to see movement on that issue. Why is that important? Because what happened in that moment was people who couldn't see themselves in the gay marriage debate could see themselves in a love frame. And um, you know, it's easy to dismiss that as sort of a, a, a feel-good way of looking at a problem, and not everything can be framed as in such a basic universal human principle as love. Or maybe it can. And I, you know, I think part of what we're battling right now on almost every front in the social issue, social change world, is fatigue, and, and there's a tendency to feel this is the worst and most challenging of all possible times in human history. And if you go back and study human history, some pretty bad stuff has happened before. Um, and, and so maybe what we can learn is that we have to go back to first principles. So you know, part of my answer that I would have given to the gentleman around the question of innovation is you know, I'm a huge believer in risk capital and, and investing in innovation and finding new ways of doing things. It's also important to go back to first principles, um, like that what we're trying to do is remind people that there are other real human beings who are not unlike them, so that we don't fall into the trap of being cynical about them or seeing them as unlike ourselves, and so that we can begin to imagine ways of solving problems that will solve the problems they're facing, but also help us. I think the only thing I would say is um, if um, probably in retrospect, as I, especially in recognition you came so far, that it probably would have been helpful also to have on the panel um, a funder who has an active role in the, the global world. Um, you know, in fact, this is the first job I've had where I haven't had some global responsibility. And, and once you experience the interconnected of what I call borderless issues, whether it's poverty or whether it's um, health issues, it's really hard to look at it really differently. I, you know, I still think that you know one of the um, great competencies of communication folks is also having a global perspective. One of the questions I always ask when I'm hiring is, do you have a passport? Um, because um, one, um, in Cal a perfect example in California, um, as other states, um, we've been dealing with a flood, had been dealing with the flood of unoccupied, un un accompanied uh, minors. And, you know, in dealing with their needs as they came over the border, it's one thing, but I think kind of understanding why parents would put their young um, children through such trauma uh, really is an understanding of where these young people were coming from and understanding what's happening. Uh, I think we could, those of us who are promoting public health can learn a lot from what's happening in Cuba. And 
you know, it doesn't matter, um, you know, if we think we have our act together in terms of air quality, if, you know, the borders that, you know, we share aren't. So I guess I would just put a pitch into, even though, you know, we give primarily only in California, that we have to also increase our understanding about how um, this world we're in is getting smaller and smaller, and a lot of it has to do with communication um, and being able to see images around the world. Because I can actually see how much time we have, I'll give you the shortest possible answer on this. I did about 10 years of work uh, on global HIV AIDS with the Geyser Family Foundation, so I, we did a lot of that kind of work. And I'll tell you, the one thing I walked away from, uh, because we have problems in this world, and then you go and see what's going on in Africa and places like this, and you realize, it's so much deeper and it's so much harder. But aspirational messages do work. People want hope. People want to know that there are solutions. They don't want to just hear about the problems. We spend a lot of time, because we worry about these problems, talking about how big and how deep they are. But if you can give people, through communications, hope and opportunity, and they can feel that there really is a solution they can do, particularly at a local level, I believe you can make a big difference. Yeah, and I would just add to that. Um, there is a, a real wide interest in this around the world. 40% um, of the people who come to read articles at our website are from outside the US. India, Brazil, China, Korea. I mean, um, we're seeing a huge interest um, from people around the world in, in these very same topics we're talking about. So it's not just you know sort of the US reaching out. It also um, goes both ways, which I find really encouraging. And with that, we're at the end of our time, and I want to be respectful of people's break time. Can so, I just say one oh. more thing? I just want to put out that we are looking at Cal Wellness for Vice President of That's Public right. Affairs. <laughs> um, there you go. <laughs> I, um, you know, Way to win most popular uh, on the panel. It's a great job. <laughs> You're not going to have to buy drinks. At but one, one of the criteria is can you follow instructions? Do not send mm. me your resume. The job will, if you're interested or you know someone, um, the job mm. will be posted on our website either uh, tomorrow or Monday. And the job can, will be based in either San Francisco or LA. And I heard that the boss is just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.